Welcome to the Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast, the tirade-filled movie debate podcast hosted by two film critics, cool dads, and struggling teachers. I'm Don Shanahan. I'm William Johnson. So formal. Formal for a cheesy movie. This is the best place to bring William Johnson. We're new, and we're Mortal damn glad... Mortal Kombat! There he is. Now we're in. We're new, we're damn glad to have you, because we're going to talk about that movie that just got yelled in the background. Folks, this is all for tantrum's sake, where shared passions and high fives wash away any place for hate. In the end, we encourage you to love what you love, but for now, the gloves are off and the hissy fit is on. But wait, this, folks, is a special edition. This is a double love edition for... Mortal Kombat! Sorry, do the gun there. Good. And folks, we're going loosey-goosey tonight because we want to do a quick turnaround time to get this edition of Mortal Kombat out to you in time for Friday when the new movie drops. We're going to talk about tonight, the 1995 Mortal Kombat. We're having a blast with it. This is a double love Cinephile Hissy Fit podcast. We have recorded, you don't know this, folks, but we have a double hater edition of the Cinephile Hissy Fit podcast. We're going to keep that teased and quiet for now, but down the road in the schedule, folks, Tonight you'll hear us love a movie, soon you'll hear us hate a movie together, and it's going to be good. This week we're talking about 1995's Paul W.S. Anderson classic Mortal Kombat. It's recommended by Will Johnson because he's the initial lover of this, and Mm -hmm. he found a kindred spirit in me rediscovering it as pregame homework in time for the new one. Our format's still going to be this, it's still going to be the same. The recommending lover of Will is going to go first as the opener and initial man. He's going to get five uninterrupted minutes to shower his praise and state his high-minded case of why you should love this movie too. The hater, which is not going to be me tonight, but the assisting presence is going to follow next with five uninterrupted minutes of his own to present their counterpoints with any manner of intellectual scorched earth. But for this, we're scorching it with love and appreciation of how hot and heated we enjoy this movie. After that, Will and I will open it up together for 15 minutes to share a conversation where the hissy fit really gets chippy, but in this case gets filled with praise. You're not going to need your judge's scorecard tonight, people, because we are both winning and the movie is both winning. Folks, let's go. Flawless victory. That was a semi-flawless intro. Folks, also tonight, I got to say this before I give Will his five minutes to get going. We're going to touch on the Oscars tonight. Give you a quick little 10-minute outro at the end of tonight. Just our impressions of the Best Picture nominees and kind of the trends of this year in this show. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Cinephile Hissy Fit Podcast. And our five minutes go to Will. Will, tell us why this movie is amazing. All righty. So um, hopefully my five minutes here will be polished because it's not like we uh, – <laughs> Had to redo this a couple of times, right, Don? Uh, <laughs> one take. One take Frakes, as they used to call Jonathan Frakes back in the day. Anyway, so 1995, I was 13 years old. 1995 was a excellent year to be alive for me. Um, in June, two months before this movie came out, my favorite basketball team, the Orlando Magic, made the NBA Finals. And um, so I got to watch basketball in the summer which is very rare for Orlando Magic fans. Um, of course, we were swept by the Houston Rockets, but um, it's not like that to put a scar in my, in my body forever. But um, anyways, so, <laughs> yeah. Hey, we beat Chicago that year uh, when Jordan came back. Never mind. Anyways, let's, this is the uh, Basketball Hizzy Fit podcast. Um, anyways, so uh, in August, um, so I was 13. I think at that time, you kind of get to a point in your life where you're starting to develop your taste in what you like. Um, 
But also, at the same time, you're still willing to see all kinds of crap <laughs> that you're going to see. So you're going to throw Mortal Kombat in front of me in 1995. I'm probably going to go watch it. <laughs> you know, I had the, the thing is, video games were in their infancy. Um, I believe Mortal Kombat's only like the second video game film of all time because after the disaster that was Super Mario Brothers, um, which of course I saw in the theater as well. Um, so it's not like it was the sacred thing. It was very new. Like no one went into Mortal Kombat. You go into Mortal Kombat now, which you will be doing this week, and there's so many expectations and lore and mythology and stuff like that. This 1995 Mortal Kombat didn't have any of that. So it was Paul W.S. Anderson, the director's job, to basically create almost from scratch this world uh, of Mortal Kombat. Because uh, when you play the game, uh, you're pretty much just playing cool dudes that fight each other. That's pretty much it. You might get an out. You might get an outro when you win. I only played with Scorpion. I drive my friends crazy. I do the transport or the teleport, and then trip them, teleport back in front of them, punch them in the face, uppercut them, jump way in the back, do the get over your here, uppercut them again, and then take my mask off and burn them with flame. It would take thirteen seconds, and it was so frustrating that my friends never played with me. So I was pretty much just me playing Scorpion to the end. So it really, I had no expectations going into the film. No, nothing like tying me to it being like, well, this Mortal Kombat better be great. And that's, I think, where the film succeeds the most, is that Paul W.S. Anderson, who's not exactly known for his uh, subtlety, shall we say, if you've seen any of the films he's made in the last 10 years uh, with his wife and muse, uh, Mila Jovovich. Um, but yeah, he makes he makes this film... And not only does he make it fantastical and very fun, uh, but he stretches the budget out as far as he can and utilizes some excellent craftsmen. Um, There is, um, I don't know where my cast list went, but for for one, let's talk about the cinematography. We're going to go into this a little bit more uh, in the 15 minute section, but um, the cinematography by John R. Leonetti, who who had a couple of hits here and there. He doesn't have like a huge resume. I mean, he's got a lot of work, but um, you know, he did like the mask and not a lot of huge hits under his belt, but kind of a workman, blue collar guy, let's call him. He, who knows? He could be super rich. I don't know. But anyways, his cinematography is breathtaking in this film. Um, if you go to my original Instagram page, um, a nostalgia bath. Uh, I honor this guy as much as I can because I don't think anyone thinks of Mortal Kombat when it comes to how it looks. People just remember the video games and the fighting and stuff like that. Now, all that stuff is top-notch too, but the film looks gorgeous. It's a fantastically looking film. So for me, as a 13-year-old, seeing this lush, gorgeous, perfectly well-shot movie in which you've got characters coming out of shadows, you've got characters... Um, utilizing light, you're not utilizing light, using different filters. It's very beautiful. Um, not to mention, I think Don will go into this a little bit more, but the production design, the art direction, the set decoration, all the stuff in this movie is fantastical. And the great part about it is that it doesn't stretch itself out by over-explaining things and going over any kind of like um, lore mythology. It lets you as the audience take that in. And that's something as a 13-year-old you gotta love. So I'm gonna let Don continue with more praise on this, and I'm sure we'll talk about some other things in the 15-minute section. That's your best timing ever. Oh, wow. Well, that's not saying much. Right on the nose. Right on the nose. 
No, I'm right there with you. When I think about this movie and just the look of it and the fun of it, and I come at this not as a super duper hardcore all time for all time lover of it. Like I enjoyed it then. I got to rewatch it now. And I'm like, man, that was a lot of fun. I think of our conversation we had when we did Batman versus Superman recently on the Cinephile History of It podcast. Please check it out. Episode four. Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League, just to Oh, but we talked about Batman versus Superman there. But we talked about Batman and how we're both lovers of 60s Batman, the old Adam West, you know, television show, and just how that knew how to look and feel like a fantasy property and did not take itself seriously. Or I think you had a great term during that show of like, you know, like it still had his piss about it. I forgot what what great turn of a phrase you said with it, Will, but this movie is a video game movie about silly looking characters of different designations and colors that just beat the shit out of each other. And there's not a lot of plot to put there in the video game, or there definitely wasn't a lot of plot to put there in the two video games we had in 1995 of mortal Kombat, and to put some framing of some story and narrative around it, you don't need a lot. And at the same time, even the part you put in is can kind of be questionable, but here comes this movie to just kind of breathe life into these characters and just, like I think you said it in your five minutes and you're going to say a little bit more here is it just does it in an economical way where this movie is under two hours. It it just moves right along and kind of pushes you right into this silly little world where all of these things could kind of be feasible and happen or the over the top characters come from over the top places, but not so not so much so that it's gaudy and too much or if it's gaudy, it's gaudy right to the right level. Kind of like 60s Batman, colorful for the sake of colorful, fun for the sake of fun, and just rooted in the pulp that it comes from. And that's totally what you get in this because this movie is just a blast. And it's a blast because of its practical effects and more realistic places to put your to put your fantasy a little bit. And when you have that going on, it just looks great. So, yeah, I've got to praise the production designer. This is a movie with had an $18 million budget, and it looks fantastic. You have uh, John A. Carlson is the production designer here, and the uh, art director next to him is Jeremy Cassell- Cassells. Both have gone on to put some careers in television, and they had a great time in this movie just creating these fantastic locations to make this movie look great. Today, this stuff would get green screened to death and be overinflated and overtuned. But here, it's plenty overtuned for the guardianess that it is, but it fits this silly little movie. No one's going to win an Oscar in this movie, and that's okay. No one's going to win any kind of you know lifetime achievement awards, but we're going to get our gifts and memes and have a great time with these characters, and we still do, and that's the fun part. This is a movie that just knows how to have fun. This is a movie that has fun with its look and has fun with its just moves to it. Will's going to talk about this more in the 15 minute section, but uh, c- cinematographer, uh, I got him right here. Here, I got John Leonetti. John Leonetti. John Leonetti, who's gone on to work with James Wan and on some horse stuff since, um, shoots the heck out of this movie in terms of giving you some realistic fight scenes and and Will will tell you some more here pre wire choreography to make just fun fight scenes. The stunt coordinator is a person I have to give props to Pat E. Johnson, who went on to do Batman and Robin and uh, his assistant, Barbara Goldstein and a little bit of Robin shoe kind of helping coordinate his own stuff because of his experience in martial arts films, the movie moves and it looks great. And the silly action is there for the sake of silly action, but the characters look the part and they feel the part and they just take these characters and have fun. I'm repeating myself, but it's just the fun that this movie is. 
part of the thing that about this movie being light and breezy and silly and still at the same time intimidating and fun to fit the video game of that's all about intimidating and fun and, and you know and dominating your opponents and all that is when you take all that and you put some energy to it to go with all the color and all the flash it just it moves great and the edm music and if you don't get stoked at the moment this movie opens when that that theme hits and we all start yelling and the, and the, <laughs> and the beat starts going man it if you don't get hyped just on the new line cinema logo showing up in that EDM starting, you don't have fun at movies and you don't know how to have fun at movies. I've met people recently who are like, Oh my God, how can you like that movie? It's just so dumb. That's because dumb is fun and dumb for, with some style and some panache isn't dumb anymore. It's fun and stylish. And that's where this movie can go in my five minutes. Nice. Yeah. We'll talk about, I'll talk about the dumb thing in a minute, but yeah. I will say that I was today years old when I realized that composer George S. Clinton mm. is not George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic. No, <laughs> I, he is not. Yes, he's he is, of Austin Powers fame after this movie. Yes, he is actually um, quite different in every way. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's kind of like with Mad Max. When you see like, oh, Brian May did the music, and then you realize it's not that Brian. Mm. Um, anyways, um, let's talk about the dumb thing for a minute because that intrigues me. Um, as you know, uh, and here's the thing: we we have done an episode. Hopefully, hopefully it recorded. Um, right. We've done it. We did an episode on Godzilla versus Kong, mm-hmm. uh, which was the double hate edition. Now, I don't really like the movie that much, but I will say this. I've seen a lot of people go online and say, like, I just like dumb things. And um, I think when you have an expert level of craft, I think one thing we agreed upon in the episode, spoiler for mm-hmm. the episode, I guess, is that it, it does have an artistry to it. It's, it's very colorful and beautiful and definitely sound design's great. So when people say this movie's dumb and I look at the things we talked about, we talked about uh, cinematography, sound design, uh, music. Uh, production design, set decoration, right. costumes, casting, which we'll go into in a minute. Mm-hmm. I just don't think you can call it dumb. I, I really think that it is. I think sometimes dumb, dumb is dumb is too strong a word. Is it is it fanciful or is it silly? I I don't want to use camp because I get in trouble for using the word camp on twenty five well sites. But <laughs> you know, but yeah, it it's there's there's this dumb can have a level of spirit that keeps it that that just slots it right in the right place where dumb isn't a negative connotation. It, oh. It's a good, just, yeah. Where the no, no, in the right place. Th- there's, there's, don't get me wrong. I mean, a guy that has a tentacle monster come out of his palm. Oh yeah. And a guy who freezes stuff. That's pretty dumb, but we're I off think, the deep end. Yeah. I think that kind of like a guy that dresses up as a bat at night, right? Exactly. I yeah. think that you can, I don't know. So my whole point with, Godzilla versus Kong is I didn't like the movie, but I defended it from people that said it was dumb because okay. I was like, no, this has a lot of craft to it. Movies are more than just their story. There's craft that goes into mm-hmm. it. There is, um, you know, there's story is more than just the screenplay too. It's how you present it. I mean, editing is a storytelling mechanism. Agreed. There's a reason why at the Oscars, which we'll talk about later, um, editing is usually the same as the best picture nominees because it's how you tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, this film, like you said, is smooth. I mean, this film has no dead, no dead meat on it, uh, no fat. It's um, 
it really moves. It really picks up from the beginning. And I'm going to tie this into one of the things I wanted to talk about, which was subtlety. Yes. When you talk about this movie, I hate to say it, um, and uh, I won't besmirch my Marvel people here because I love Marvel. I think Marvel's an exception. I don't want you to lose your shield card either. Right. (laughs) Your levels up, buddy. I think uh, I think Marvel's the exception to the rule, but a lot of cases with franchises or IPs or things like that. There's this tendency to kind of put as much, put as many eggs into the basket as you can to explain the world and have this mythology. And, and mm-hmm. people don't want to take the patience to have a mythology. Now, the great thing about Mortal Kombat was 1995, second video game movie ever made. First one was a disaster, Super Mario Brothers. There's no guarantee this is going to be a hit. I think in one of our rehearsals, quote unquote, we talked mm-hmm. about the fact that Mortal Kombat was released in kind of a dead zone. Or, yeah, late August, where the you know, the crap of summer that's not good enough for Memorial Day and holiday weekends goes to die. Yeah, yeah, and so there was no guarantee this would be a hit. And what I like about it is it wasn't setting up a sequel. It what well, I mean, the ending yeah. is kind of the ending yeah. kind of sets up a sequel, but I think that's more of like kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to right. you know the idea that video games continue on, right. not that the movie's got a chance. Right, right, right. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't clearly saying like. Tune in next year when Liu Kang returns. Right. You know, so it, it's, um, it was more... Especially for a sequel where three quarters of this cast do not come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which we'll get into in a minute. But um, so the, the thing is, is that you, you have somebody like Raiden, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this might be blasphemy to people, but the thing I love about Raiden, whether it's a good actor or not, which we'll also debate later, <laughs> um, he reminds me of Yoda. Um, yeah, that's a Yoda... In Empire the Strikes in the Empire Strikes Back, not in the prequels. Um, mm-hmm. The thing about Yoda in Empire Strikes Back is you never really see him be this masterful Jedi. He does a couple of things that pique your interest, that make you go, "Hmm, I wonder what he was like back in the day." You know, like it lets you write the story yourself in your head. Yeah. And what I like about Raiden is, with the exception of like one moment, he never really uses his power you automatically get the impression that he is the super guy who could kick the shit out of anybody mm-hmm. and they never do it. And the other thing was, is I have, this is what I fear about the new mortal Kombat movie coming out is I really like that. The characters aren't based on their special moves from the game. Right. Those are more fluid in their development. Like for instance, you get the shadow kick from, uh, I don't know if that's what it's called. Please don't lynch me. Um, the, the shadow kick from Johnny Cage. Yeah, you, the, the, the kick from Johnny Cage. Right. The, he's got that shadow kick. He uses it once. Um, you Luke, know. Luke King and the Fireball. Luke King and the Fireball is. a culmination that comes out once. Right. He actually, they actually kind of narratively build up to his fireball. Yeah, in sure, the video yeah. game, you can shoot fireballs all day. Oh, yeah. But in this one, it's like he has to unlock that power, you know, to, mm-hmm. to use it. And it's actually very powerful when he's just using like martial arts moves. And then right at the end, when he's finally defeating the villain, he just shoots this fireball out. And you're like, holy crap, that was awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, like if he was shooting fireballs left and right, it'd be kind of boring. So, yeah, I really, it would I, be over, it'd be overdone and overtuned. And right. I have the same fear, too, about the new one that and maybe this is the I think one of the criticisms of this old one is that it, it went it you know, kind of pulled punches and did a PG-13 thing for a video game that was very known for its bloodlust. So. The, obviously the new one is promising super graphic violence which mm-hmm. 
I think is an untapped place that this movie can go. But I wonder, my fear is how they're going to get there. Are they going to do it by overtuning it all just for the sake of overtuning it all? Because you're right. The strength of this movie for a, a video game property that has no subtlety is to bring a movie that does. Mm-hmm. So when my fear is that the new movies just could be as in your face as possible, just for the sake of being in your face, big, loud, and dumb. And look what we can do with effects. Look what we can do with violence when you give us an R rating. And of course the effects of now, you know, definitely are going to look better than lizard and a few things here, mm. but reptile. My, yeah. But Not when lizard. you do that, when you do that, <laughs> sorry, no, 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 no. But like, <laughs> but, but when you Jackass. go guardian, but when you go guardian, do the big old effects, you lose one of the things that comes from subtlety, which is character. The mm. fact that they're building up to these places and that you've got some humans underneath those colorful shells playing these parts, even though they're not, even though they're not very deep parts, you still mm. have some heroes and p- characters you grow to learn and root for and not just look at and go, can you do the cool thing again? Cause they're going to do the cool thing over and over again with the one movie they've got. Yeah, no. In the new one. That's the word. <laughs> Yeah, I, what I do like about the new one is that it seems to be a cast of mostly unknowns, which is cool. Yeah, um, much like this one. Um, time, yeah. Now, let's talk about the casting. Uh, I do want to cover some technical stuff in a minute, but um, I really like the cast for this film. Um, I think we both are in agreement that Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa as Shang Tsung oh, yeah. is having the time of his life. And mm-hmm. he's, you, you really just he's just having so much fun and you just yeah. love his and he's still spooky he's still evil yeah. but he's got that 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 squint when he's not doing the wide like his range of just from his nose to his forehead is incredible because <laughs> he can do the raised eyebrows but in a in a calm fashion he can do the full wide eyes like he's gonna talk take away your soul and then he can squint and just deliver a line in a small little way that isn't overemphasized but yeah he's overacting and having a blast yeah, and it doesn't I, take I away from the movie. Like, no, oh, no, no, no. It adds to it because you kind of need to have that, mainly because you've got a few flat characters in other places. Or at yes, least a I few think, flat actors. While we both praise Tagawa, mm-hmm. I think we both agree that Bridget Wilson Sampras now, she's yeah. Pete Sampras' wife, is terrible. Uh, a, ro- is. a role that was originally going to go to Cameron Diaz, not that that's much better as an actress, but... Um, oh, she'd be a lot more fun. I think she'd be a lot more fun. Um, but... Um, so, but there's some really good stuff. Trevor Goddard plays Kano, uh, really oh. takes use of all the screen time he has and really relishes that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's literally spitting from oh, screaming yeah. in this movie. It's great. Um, one of my favorite Bond girls, Talisa Soto from License to Kill. Um, not a great actress, but they use her very seldomly and usefully. Like, like mm-hmm. you said, I think the term you used was economic. Like they use everything yeah. economically. Um, Robin Shaw, I think, is a good hero. I mean, he's like I said, not another like deep actor, but he's got presence. He's physically interesting. He's got a lot of good moves. But one one person I wanted to give a shout out to, and I wish that this movie because this movie was a success. It was a very good yeah. success. Eighteen million dollar budget turned into one hundred twenty two domestic. That's that's a great return. Yeah, and I'm sure it did well overseas too. Because oh, and physical like media property. after that, yeah, yeah, it's got a it's had a long shelf life. But I think the 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 next to Tagawa, the actor of the movie is Lyndon Ashby, who played Johnny Cage. Agreed. I think he's great. I think he's charming. I think he's actually got some like you can tell it's not his stuntman. If it mm-hmm. is his stuntman at any point, you can't tell. I agree. Um, he's he's great. Um, 
And really, I didn't see him until 12 years later. I mean, he did a lot of TV work and soaps and stuff. But, he sure did. But he showed up in Resident Evil Extinction, which was another Paul W.S. Anderson thing. And I was so happy. And people were in the audience were like, why are you happy that this guy's showing up on screen? I'm like, it's Johnny Cage. He's in another movie. Um, but uh, Lyndon Ashby's fantastic. I wanted to give him props. But I think the question that we might be divided on, okay, casting-wise, is Christopher Lambert or Lambert. Yeah. I'll, I'll start the soapbox with this one. I just don't think Christopher Lambert is a very good actor or a big presence. I know he's got his little squint and scowl and he tries to do the gruff Sandy voice that he thinks is sexy. I don't know what woman <laughs> in the right mind would think it's sexy. Like I, he's just a funny, weird looking dude. I'm not saying he looks like scrat from ice age, but somewhere like I said, I, 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 he's in the Benedict Cumberbatch family for me of like, weird looking dudes that people find sexy or at least think themselves to be sexy. Cause he does that in like Highlander too, where he, you know, and he just, he's not the most built looking guy in the world yet. He beds these beautiful women and, and just he, lots of movies. He just all of a sudden is the dish of dishes. And in this, and then he has just this dialogue delivery method also in every role he's in that is just weirdly inconsistent and just totally <laughs> off from what the script is going, where it, you feel like he just rolled off the set, smoked a cigarette, flicked it away and said, I'm going to deliver my lines and get the fuck out of here. I'm not going <laughs> to rehearse for three weeks for this, where you could tell everyone else came to play. And he's just, he's there for presence alone. He's a poor man, Steven Seagal. And oh Jesus, because Stephen Stephen too has so little range of voice and and timber and and, and embellishment of of words that he just doesn't have it. Looks great for for Yoda part. Go ahead, have have have, have Highlander show up, but no man, I, you he can get upgraded by somebody else and be ten times better. Fatality. Yeah, I know. Um. I mean, I'm not going to praise him. I think he's actually so awful in this movie that he's great. That's true. Um, I'll back that. Like, he is... I will say this. For an actor, you want to get... Uh, I, I was talking about this with... Uh, for anyone who knows me as a Marvel guy, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, there's a character on that show called John Walker. Mm -hmm. uh, the actor is fantastic. He's a great guy. The character he plays is a total bitch-ass. Mm -hmm. so but that's the thing he's doing his job as an actor and that's something he says all the time he's like i don't care if fans hate me i did my job i got a reaction out that's right christopher lambert in this film whatever his acting choices happen to be <laughs> i don't know what they are uh -huh. but whatever they are they are memorable and they have an impact on me like i will yeah. forever know lord raiden this performance mm -hmm. like if there's anything i'm going to hold on to in the new mortal Kombat. Like, I'm not upset there's no Robin Shower, Lyndon Ashby, or whatever, sure. <laughs> or even Tagawa. I feel like Raiden is Lambert. I know that sounds crazy, but like he actually kind of owns the role. And, mm -hmm. and that might be through his bizarre acting choices and his accent and stuff like that, but I'll do that. Now, I know we're running a little short on time, um, but, I, but one thing I wanted to focus on real quick is a couple of the set pieces in the film because I don't want to go. I don't want to go an episode without saying it. Yeah. And when I when I say that, I mean we've already recorded this three times. Uh, <laughs> we didn't really record it. So let me just get a couple of the set pieces out of the way here. One thing I think we both agree on 
is that the Scorpion Johnny Cage fight scene from the beginning yeah. to the end is a magnificent piece of filmmaking. Right. In the cobweb um, scaffold room, in the backlighting, in the depth. Like you could tell they're in a big room that they'd set dressed to death for just a small area that they were using for the fight, but just to give the whole scene some depth and to penny pinch $18 million to make these grandiose fake sets and then have some exotic, wonderful locations in Thailand and Vietnam and things like that. Mm -hmm. Man, they got their money's worth for $18 million here. Well, even before the fight goes to the uh, ladder and skeleton dungeon (laughs) or whatever Mm -hmm. the hell they're in. Right. Uh, Johnny Cage is walking kind of aimlessly through this forest Ooh, and it's yeah. these beautiful leafless trees that kind of go on forever. Like what I love about it is there's a shot where like Scorpion comes out of the trees and then they, they, they cut back to Johnny Cage standing in the middle of this row of trees mm-hmm. and it seems to go on forever. Like it's, it's, it's almost dreamlike because it's like, there's no end. There's no, like, yeah. there's no, it's only horizon and it's all trees. It's beautiful. And, yeah. And that's a physical location. Somebody today yes. would green screen that in a, in a, in a, in a half ass job. Exactly. So they go from this beautiful location thing to obviously something that's in a studio, mm-hmm. but it's so, it reminds me a lot of some of the nightmare on Elm street films in terms of like the set design, like, you know, it's a set, but something about it is so creative. And so cavernous. That's the other thing. You can tell when a set is bad. Yeah. Like a set like this where you really feel like there are corners and little little walkways you can go into and other you know you know what I mean? Like there's actually like there's that actually layer dimension. where sometimes it's dinner, sometimes it's tunnels, some of those fight locations, like the Sub Zero Liu Kang fight. You got nooks and crannies and spots, not just like a mat in some space and say, All right, guys, have fun. See you in mm-hmm. a little bit. You know, and even when characters come in and encircle it, you still have just moving backgrounds. You got the the cheers and the arm the arm fist pumping shawled guys that are in there. And yeah, there's depth and corners and layers everywhere. Whereas some of the, even the best mad artists of today who are trying to paint these obviously fake, but still detailed and colorful backgrounds still miss a little bit of that. You still need some dinge, you know? Now, my last thing I'll say, we can move on, but um, what really fascinated me as a kid seeing this in the theater, and I have a very visceral memory of this. All right. Is when Johnny Cage and Scorpion, I'm sorry, Johnny Cage and Liu Kang go to Outworld. Um, they, you know, Outworld is kind of like this post-apocalyptic kind of just, it looks like a bombed out Europe. You know, it looks like something from the third man or something. It's just like these, I don't know where they filmed this. I mean, cause it's mm-hmm. clearly not a matte painting. It's not a set cause it's a lot of big buildings that look abandoned and kind of dressed down. Mm-hmm. But I'll always remember there's a scene and this goes to the cinematography of John Leonetti. Um, there's a scene where I think. Liu Kang and, and uh, Johnny Cage, I keep wanting to say Scorpion. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, they are kind of like in the bottom right of the screen. And behind them is this large expanse of Outworld. And you've got these kind of, we kind of go to this endless idea of like this landscape, you know? There's kind of like this endless landscape of these destroyed buildings. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of fires everywhere. And if you look, yeah. at the, if you look in the very back left, this is a detail that always impressed me. There is what you can see is the shadow of someone running mm. way in the background. I'm talking about like, you'd have to see this for the third time. Like I did in the theater to notice, but it's way in the back. And 
someone had the wherewithal to walk in front of a light on purpose yeah. and cast the sh- cast the shadow Very of cool. this of this weary lonely creature in this abandoned world it yeah. just it just stuff like that adds so much depth and for oh, me yeah. as a 13 year old seeing something like that and seeing the care they went into like cuz that's a throwaway thing I mean, totally. Who, it's a scene. It's a transition, like scene establishment, like just travel scene. You know, there's not much going on there. There's and, nothing going on to yeah. put that kind of care and detail and scope into a, a transition scene is amazing. Absolutely. I, I wonder if they use that same set. I don't know if you know your '90s movies. Um, did you mm-hmm. ever see What Dreams May Come? I did. Yes. But, like when they get like the what is it the that walk down to hell. Mm-hmm. with cuba gooding jr and uh it looks uh, familiar it looks the same like you that same be. like old barge that's dressed up with bad souls but obviously they dressed it one way for this and they'll dress it a different way for another yeah thing. but yeah that but same same kind of scene like it's used to be a transitional checkpoint for something else that you're trying to get to but it looks amazing practical set again and then and then um we'll just do lightning round on this one real quick yeah you I bet think we t- i think we talked about it before and it needs it needs to be mentioned. There are two primary effects in this film. Mm. I want to know if you think they work or don't work. The first one is Goro. Yeah. The second one is Reptile. <laughs> Ooh, well, well, my lightning round answer is one out of two. Uh, okay. Well, what y'all? Three quarters of one out of two. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, reptile looks terrible and but but i yeah. also am aware enough to go hey it's 1995 we've seen you know we 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 admire and love worse effects in worse films so yeah. and i know they're there it looks my comp i keep thinking about my head is two years later spawn looked just as bad and i know yeah. you're going to say something like virtuosity or lawnmower man where yes. that was about the scope of of uh scope of texture they had for online things back then or for for computerized images back then and they yep. did their best and they still use them in a in a small enough way to do the camouflage and other scenes that it's not it's horrible but it's not obtrusive goro i kind of love but then kind of go, oh, man, I know they could do a little better if they had a little more time and maybe if another couple servos in the robot. But it's um to have a physical presence between it, whether that's half animatronic and half dude in a suit. That's awesome, because how many times have we seen in other movies a CGI creature, even even straight up in the Avengers, the Hulk, like 100 percent of the time in an Avengers movie, the Hulk is not there. They are acting against air. They are pushing against, you know, tennis balls and things that are that are in green suits. So to have big old Goro coming in with full puppetry, the scowling eyes, the 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 look, the shade, the shadow, the muscles, the it's not the fastest moving thing in the world. It's not mm-hmm. the tightest looking model in the world, but he looks freaky. And the mouth yes. cannot the mouth cannot ever match the dialogue coming out of it. But he still <laughs> is physically in a scene especially when you combine that with the sets and the way they light him and the way they use him and the way that stunt coordinators act against him he looks the part and when i came out came out of the movie in 1995 that was my like almost proof of concept like guys maybe we can have a hulk movie that isn't just luferino <laughs> painted green like, oh god and, and then ang lee got a hold of it and yeah. ang lee and same thing <laughs> ang lee did his best with oh three standards but at the same sure. time it's been beat since then I what's your say, lightning round answer for the for reptile and gore oh reptile looks uh, horrible and um i think we can agree on that it looks mm-hmm. terrible uh, i i don't want this to be a brett leonard dumping party but nah, um yes. finish him but um lawnmower man and virtuosity were 
uh, two films by the same director that obviously took a technology that was in its infancy mm-hmm. and said, let's do everything we possibly can with it right now instead of like looking at its limits. Yeah. This applies to Reptile. Reptile is so in your face and so blatant that, look, it's a CGI monster. That right. How <laughs> it's cool so, are we? Yeah, it's really bad. Now, Goro, I, I, I will, I'm not going to uh, just repeat the same things you said. I will say okay. this, though. Let's compare Goro. You mentioned his eyes. Mm-hmm. One thing I find unsettling about that puppet is that its face is real enough, mixed with the voice and stuff, that it's kind of scary. Totally and agree. Let's take Goro, and then let's look at somebody like uh, Tarkin in Rogue One, in Ooh. which you have the corpse of, um, what's his face? Um, oh, Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing. Now, it looks pretty good until you get to the eyes and the mouth. And then so, there's, a, there's the uncanny valley. Mm-hmm. And it, it totally ruins it. I would rather have a puppet <laughs> that looks weird now, yeah, but still is physical, tactile, and something I can touch and interact with than something I know that if I walk into a room with... It goes back to the scene with Scorpion in the forest, too. Mm-hmm. I can go I can, I can go in that forest. I, I, if I walk in that forest now, there is the potential that Scorpion would come out and fight me. It's real. <laughs> it's tactile. Like A tangible place, yeah. All right, so I think we covered everything we did in our quote-unquote rehearsals. Well, I'll tell you what. Close us out with a quick little minute on the music, because you're a big fan of the music. I, I mean, the EDM yes. works for me, but tell us some more. Okay, so the music is a, a great mixture of um, EDM, uh, which I'm not a huge like fan of. I don't know a lot of artists and stuff, mm-hmm. but it's also a mixture of, of heavy metal. And um, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of bands on there that mix them, um, which is great. Like KMFDM. Um, uh, if anyone's a fan of Bad Boys, the, the same song is used. It's kind of a recut. Um, uh, I think it's called Jute Joint Jezebel. It's very kind of, you, you would know it if you heard it. It's that kind of popular of a song. Sure. Um, but there's also some amazing bands on here that really got me like at that time at 13 when i was just discovering metal i was listening to punk like pop punk so mm-hmm. i was into i was into speed and a little bit of heavy but this soundtrack came out i mean we had a gzr who's um led by geezer butler of black sabbath he had this he had this super group called gzr with the lead singer of fear factory fear factory's on here their song zero signal is the song they use in the scorpion johnny cage fight and you'll actually be it's it's so operatic and intense that you might actually think it's actual score work, but it's actually a song. Um, typo negative, napalm death, um, buckethead. But then you had these like then you had these mixture bands like Gravity Kills, um, like I said, KMFDM. You had like these instrumentals by Orbital and Tracy Lords and Utah Saints and the Immortals. It's just a fantastic mixture. Of mm-hmm. those, there, there's a scene in the beginning, which is also beautifully shot, which I wanted to talk about. Was there's a scene in the beginning where Sonya infiltrates like this club, and it looks like like kind of like a leather club, like where people are dancing, but they're yeah. playing "Twist the Knife Slowly" by Napalm Death, <laughs> which is um, not like a dancing song. <laughs> and um, so I thought that was a little odd uh, conceptually, but um, just I, I just can't. I think that sums up the thing for me. That scene mm-hmm. in particular, you've got. This insane metal music, 
beautiful imagery. There's scenes in that in that where like Kano comes out of the shadows. You can only see the red of his eye. Uh, Shang Sun's sitting in front of this like fish tank that's got these beautiful bubbles coming up, and it's all these different hues of colors. Later on, in the, and later on in the scene, a couple minutes later, he's coming out of the shadows with all these hooks and chains. And everything. It's just beautiful. So I think that kind of sums it up. I, I know I went a little bit on the music, but yeah, Don't back worry. to. But I think that it's talk about a symbiosis. The music complements the imagery perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it uh, provides so much energy. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I think if you put uh, too much of a traditional score, at, you know it just wouldn't you'd have some lulls or you'd have some places where not that there weren't great score makers back in the nineties. Cause you still had some primes as some great composers there, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know who you're going to get for $18 million to come in there and, and give you a, a, you know, John Williams ain't going to make this movie. So, <laughs> so to get what you get, it, it's not bad, you know, and when you can, and a great example of how you can substitute music instead of score and still have something fun. All right. Oh Yeah. Can we close Mortal Kombat? Yes, I wanted to say things. The Mortal Kombat soundtrack was two times platinum and go. was on the was number ten on the Billboard 200. So it was a huge it was a huge soundtrack. Oh yeah, it, and it, I still it, to this day listen to that soundtrack. So we're talking what? How many years? You're the math guy. That's a twenty. Uh, whew, that's twenty six. Twenty six years. I still pop that CD in. Well, maybe not nice. the CD, but <laughs> mm-hmm. anyways, but, yes. All right. So follow us on Twitter at cinephile fits and on facebook at cinephile hissy fits podcast um you'll notice when one of us takes over the twitter feed because uh, if you find a bunch of broken links and images that don't work that's don correct and 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 if you find a lot of marvel content or horror movie content that's me also correct um also um i want to mention on our twitter uh if you want to get a hashtag going uh, we really want Samantha Robinson, the actress, to come on to our uh, podcast someday. Indeed. Um, so, what would be like a good hashtag Twitter? Like, uh, Ooh, it's got. So, can we get our Samantha on Cinephile or yeah, it's or CFH or something like that? Something we want Samantha. Yeah, let's let's hashtag we want Samantha. Come up with something that you would like because even though I'm more of the Twitter guy than Don is, I'm an idiot. So let's. I, we don't know what we're. No doing. argument there. So um, we really want Samantha Robinson on. She actually liked and replied to one of my tweets. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're welcome. And um, I uh, had nothing to do with Don. It was all me. And uh, <laughs> I just, I was so happy that I almost died. Uh, so um, we have broken the shield a little bit, but let's push it a little further. Anyways, also, please find us both on Letterboxd. Uh, we use it quite often. Um, we see a lot of films. We post about them. We write reviews on them. Uh, sometimes we share the content from our letterbox reviews and put them as our own reviews, you know, just or more longer versions of them. So check that out. Um, have we determined if we're posting polls <laughs> anymore? Maybe we'll see. But if there is a poll there, tell us who won this cinephile his if it podcast about Mortal Kombat. I think we both won, so maybe no. I think we both need. won. So. Uh, you know, uh, to take Alien versus Predator, another Paul W.S. Anderson film, and flip it over. Whoever wins, we all win. That's so right. there you go. Um, okay, thank you so much for your captive audience and social media participation. Cinephile Hissy Fits is a 25YL media podcast. It is brought to you by the RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. 
please visit, rate, review, and subscribe. If you enjoyed this show, we have more where that came from with interesting hosts. That's us. Uh, wonderful guests. Samantha Robinson? Question mark? Uh, all these are available on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you find your favorite shows. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com.